0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine.
3: Hello and welcome to History's Greatest Mysteries. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This is episode three of the series, and today we'll be heading even further back into the ancient world and exploring one of the foundational episodes in Greek history, the Trojan War. Thanks to Homer's Iliad, this legendary conflict is ingrained in the popular imagination. But how much of the story, if any, is actually true? Was there ever a Trojan War? To explore this question, I was joined by the award-winning author and classicist, Daisy Dunn. Before we get into the question of historical accuracy, I wonder if you could just briefly summarise the legend of the Trojan War as it's come down to us.
2: Well, we know the Trojan War mainly from the epics of Homer, so the Iliad and its sequel, the Odyssey. And they tell this fantastic story of the Greeks invading Troy in order to take revenge or get back um, Helen. And Helen was the wife of Menelaus of Sparta. And she left, or rather she was taken by Paris, the Prince of Troy. And supposedly she was the face that launched a thousand ships, most famously. And you had Greeks sailing in from all over uh, the place, over a thousand ships, sailing uh, into Troy and declaring war on the Trojan citadel and sort of the Trojan royal family from which Paris came. And as I said, it's, it's largely through Homer uh, that we know these so these two fantastic epic poems that we know the story. but probably the story aspects of the story at least and so the, the judgment of Paris that preceded this are probably a lot earlier than the Homeric poems themselves. We've got aspects of stories which have been told for for thousands of years before they even found a place within the epic poems. And
3: so, the in the legendary version of the Trojan War, there are quite a lot of involvement from the gods and things like that, so there's definitely a mythical element to the story that we have.
2: And absolutely, I mean, you've got uh, the gods very much sort of taking sides on the battlefield, some of them get behind the Trojans, others get behind the Greeks, and it's not really a very fair contest, shall we say, for a lot of the men who are on the battlefield. Obviously, it's an advantage if they have a god or a goddess helping them. And a lot of it, I mean, even King Priam, he is actually very kind to Helen, for example, whereas lots of people aren't, because he says, oh, it's not you that's to blame. It's clearly the gods in all this who are to blame for the conflict altogether.
3: And is it fair to say that the best known aspect of the Trojan Wars would be the Trojan horse and the way that they, the Greeks finally defeat them?
2: Yes, so the Trojan horse is sort of the, the pièce de résistance, the uh, this magnificent contraption that's supposedly engineered by Odysseus, one of the Greeks, and all the Greeks of clamber inside, and they wheel this horse into the citadel and finally storm it, and that supposedly brings about the fall of Troy. But intriguing, that episode is actually not told within the Iliad. It falls outside of the epic poems that that Homer um, composed, so we know that story better through Virgil's Aeneid, and that's a work of, of the Roman Empire instead. Again, these are kind of a whole network of stories and traditions which were which were told, um, but that you don't find sort of every aspect of them within Homer.
3: And what do we know of the providence of Homer's poems themselves in terms of where they were written, when they were written, and even who wrote them?
2: This is another of those million-dollar questions. Who was Homer? Did Homer exist? Was Homer a man? Was Homer a woman? Was Homer plural? What we can say is we believe that the the epic poems of Homer reached something like their complete form uh, in the late 8th or the early 7th century BC. They probably started life a lot earlier than that. We know that something behind them was the oral tradition. So they were products of an age which lacked literacy. So they weren't written down initially. They were told by being sung probably to the accompaniment of the lyre, by bards. And they would have changed, they'd have developed, and they accumulated material as they went on. They passed down generations. People remembered them. Um, People sung them to each other. So they weren't fixed in any kind of sense until much, much later. So... Homer, as a as a term, is complicated. I think in the ancient world, people certainly thought that there was an author called Homer. There wasn't any doubt that Homer was the author of the two epic poems, but no no one could really say for sure who Homer was. So people came up with all kinds of stories. I mean, the word Homer wasn't a traditional name in Greece, and it could mean various things. So some people said oh, it meant it meant blind, and the idea that Homer was a blind poet became a very popular popular one. Um, Lots of people carved busts of Homer and showed him as blind. Um, Homer could also mean hostage. So people said, well, maybe he was a hostage poet and he came up with these stories in his captivity. Um, There are about seven ancient cities that claimed to be his home. Chios was one one of them in particular. And there was a band of singers called themselves the Children of Homer, who was performing his epics quite early on, around the 6th century B.C., and then supposedly he died on Ios. So there's sort of all these different places. But I think what, what they have in common is they all, six out of the seven at least, form part of the same kind of area of Greece. So it's either sort of one the islands just off the west coast of Turkey or the west coast of what we call Turkey. So it's that kind of region and the clues and the dialects of the poems that they came from that part of the world rather than from mainland Greece. And
3: Homer's, it, well, if there's a Homer, these poems are actually being written down several centuries after the Trojan War supposedly took place. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. So the Homeric epics, let's just give them the date for argument's sake of around 790, BC. They're actually describing events in the late Bronze Age, so about f- at least 400 years earlier. So even though these are two poems, I mean, think it, it kind of makes sense in a way to think of them almost like historical novels. But if you think you have a historical novel today, you'll read it and they'll be full of phrases um, that we wouldn't use and sort of mentioning, uh, mentions of things that we wouldn't come across, of, you know, horses and chariots or whatever else. But then there'd also be phrases that we're familiar with that inadvertently find themselves in there. If we think, say, 2,000 years' time, can you imagine someone finding one of the historical novels that was written last week? They'd be quite confused as to when it was written because they'd know from other evidence that certain aspects of it were not a lot around now. You wouldn't find horses and chariots in the year 2021. At the same time, they'd find hints and bits of language which uh, we use all the time, but we don't really realise that it to our age rather than the earlier age. So it'd be a complete sort of jumble. And Homeric poems are very much like that. They're a jumble of aspects where Homer is trying to make the descriptions sound older than they were. They're sort of conscious archaisms, things that try and evoke this late Bronze Age from before his own time. But there's an added complicating factor in that they also, because of this old tradition behind them, There are certain words and ideas which have been passed down and remembered. There are sort of memories which are embedded within them. So you have a whole mishmash of time periods and chronologies within the Homeric poems, which is what makes it so complicated to say when exactly they were written or who Homer was.
3: But do we have a rough date then for if there was a Trojan War, when the Trojan War would have taken place?
2: Yes. So in the ancient world, there was very little doubt that the Trojan War, was a real war. It was part of their Greek's history, as far as they were concerned. So, if we go to one of the great historians, Herodotus, is often called the father of history. He said that he thought the Trojan War took place about eight hundred years before his own time, and we know that Herodotus was writing in the later fifth century BC. So that would put the date of the Trojan War at around twelve fifty BC. We then find other people like the mathematician Eratosthenes, he came up with a more specific but a slightly later date. He said it happened in 1184 to 3 BC. And what's really interesting from a kind of archaeological point of view is that those two dates actually mark the endpoints of two different habitations at the site of Troy. And both those habitations ended in destruction and disaster. So we have two feasible dates there for the Trojan War among, you know, a great many, but would be placing them in the late Bronze Age.
3: So, yeah, so that's interesting, actually. So I was going to ask you about what kind of archaeological evidence is there that might support a theory of there being a Trojan War?
2: We've got to go sort of to the the site of Troy, first of all, and that was in dispute for quite a long time. It was in the the late 19th century that finally uh, there's a a chap called Frank Calvert, and he came across this site uh, at i sorry, my Turkish pronunciation is probably not very good, um, but that is near the Hellespont uh, on the west coast of modern Turkey. And he kind of gave this tip off. And Heinrich Schliemann, this great sort of Prussian businessman, very wealthy, self-made man, no real archaeological training to speak of. He went over there and began to dig and excavate this site. And he uncovered sort of the earliest evidence that we have. For the Trojan War. Unfortunately, he did it in quite a haphazard manner without having this very sort of, rigorous archaeological training that other people would have had even then. Uh, he went with the idea, well, Trojan War was a long time ago, so therefore I've got to dig as deep as possible. Um, so he did that, he dug, 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 and consequently disrupted a lot of the layers, and he uncovered amazing things like fantastic jewelry, um, lots of gold, and he famously sort of dressed his young wife up in some of uh, this jewelry. But later, he found that actually a lot of what he'd found was several hundred years too early to have belonged to the period of the Trojan War. So it was mainly sort of later archaeologists, in particular, who who went sort of in the 1930s and uncovered more and tried to really separate Troy into layers and sort of different strata and mainly they're in agreement that there are about 10 main habitations at this site and within those various other substrata. But the ones that interest us in terms of a a Trojan war are the layers that we broadly call Troy 6 and Troy 7. And within those layers, we find some certain things that that ring true from what we hear in in Homer, for example. So Troy 6 was the grander of those two cities. And Troy Six contained these amazing limestone walls, built of huge um, limestone blocks, tall walls, about four and a half meters thick in places, so absolutely magnificent walls. And in Homer, we hear of um, these walls surrounding Troy. So there's a, a wide and very beautiful wall that surrounds the ancient citadel. And he claimed that it was actually built by Poseidon, the sea god, in order that the city would be indestructible. So there's an element of that. Um, we also find sort of towers. We find a south tower, for example, on the the main entrance, probably to the citadel, built slightly later. And when archaeologists were excavating, they found these walls were destroyed, and then rebuilt. And During the period when they were rebuilt, in this kind of Troy Seven period, certain changes were made to the city. And it was slightly peculiar because before Troy had been really expansive with sort of wide cities, quite spread out. But suddenly we get a load of what people often call them kind of shacks almost sort of single-room accommodation built, lots and lots of these little houses built next to each other in very sort of close proximity. And almost all of them had built, sunk beneath their floors, these really, really enormous storage jars for grain or for sort of other produce, which suggests some kind of effort to stockpile, I think. That's what we'd say. So it's quite bewildering, this evidence that we're presented with. And there's sort of certain arguments as to what actually could have happened because... Most people for a time were saying that Troy 6 was probably destroyed by earthquake. We found sort of the walls have fallen down. We've got human remains crushed beneath masonry. But there's also evidence of fire. And within this, there's also evidence of conflict, I would say, as well. There are bronze arrowheads. There are bronze knives. There are axes. There are uh, slingshots with kind of terracotta pellets. Uh, we can't say definitively, oh, these are the instruments of war that were used in a Trojan war. But it's interesting that they were there, there in the soil, um, and then that sort of Troy is, is destroyed and then very hastily rebuilt, but in not quite to the grandeur that existed before and what looked like preparations for, for future conflicts.
3: So the archaeological evidence, while it may not conclusively support there being a Trojan war, certainly doesn't go against the theory of there being such a conflict. Is that fair to say?
2: I think that's definitely fair to say. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we're looking at the Trojan War, we're having to look at the broader context of the geography and of the territory at this time. And we find a lot more evidence, not coming necessarily from the archaeology of Troy itself, but from neighboring places. So, Troy was uh, sort of just west of this great kingdom uh, presided over by the Hittites. And so the Hittite Empire was absolutely enormous at this time. It sort of stretched from, from the Aegean to modern Iraq broadly and they were highly developed people they had their own writing system they had sort of wrote uh, cuneiform they had these tablets and these tablets have actually a lot of them have survived and we find among these tablets mentions of troy which is really interesting and they knew troy as a different name they knew, knew troy as a place called willusa and willusa is etymologically it's linked to the word that homer uses for troy which is ilios or ilium and we find in one of these great Hittite tablets from about 1280 BC, or thereabouts, we find that the king of Willusa is called Alexandros, which is very close to Alexandros, the the other name for Paris, the Prince of Troy, in Homer's epic. He forms an agreement with the king of the Hittites, to um, provide manpower to them in exchange, essentially, for greater protection in the instance of war. So they actually signed a treaty together. We then find slightly later a tablet describing a a conflict over Walusa between the Hittites and a territory called Ahiyawa. We don't really know who or where Ahiyawa was, but there's quite a strong argument for seeing that as part of Greece. And sort of partisan Mycenaean Greece, in which case we've got some possible evidence for a conflict over Troy between Greece and these Hittite neighbours. Um, particularly we find a conflict between uh, the brother of the king of Ahioa. Um He gets involved in some sort of politics, uh, some revolutionary forces who are threatening Hittite control. So we can't say definitively that any of this is evidence for a Trojan war, but we can say that there's conflicts and allegiances being made across this territory at this time. There seems to be um, upheaval and sort of a need for people to form alliances and to try and strengthen their manpower because people seem to be under threat in this period.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
1: And you mentioned earlier that the ancient Greeks were pretty certain
3: that a Trojan War had taken place. I mean, how seriously do you think we should take that? I mean, is it possible that a completely fictional event could have become history for them?
2: I think it's possible. But having said that, I when you look at... We may not have sort of as much of Troy as we would like to have, but we have similar places. So we have um, so the Mycenaean era is the one that's really being celebrated in in Homer, and so much of what Homer actually describes actually rings true of the archaeology in these other places as well. So forget about Troy for a moment. We think about King Agamemnon, who's the, sort of the leader of the Greek army. He's said to come from Mycenae, and Mycenae is sort of rich in gold, and My- Mycenae is one of these great centres of Mycenaean civilization In the Peloponnese, um, great palace, again, enormous walls, a palace with a throne room, uh, with astonishing sort of network of rooms. Nestor, another of the great Greeks in the Iliad, uh, he comes from sandy Pylos. And Pylos, again, is another great Mycenaean centre with a huge palace and uh, lots of graves being excavated as well. So we've got Uh, all these places of, of great grandeur and wealth which are coming up in the poem and we can see them there on the soil today like we can see in all these places that these are fantastic archaeological sites and a lot of parallels can be drawn between what Homer's describing and what we can actually see in the ground right now so I think it's very difficult to say that Homer is entirely fictional because it just it doesn't seem that way when you look at the sort of the broader picture, not just at Troy, but also across these great Mycenaean centres as well. I think with Homer, we're probably more likely looking at a sort of an artistic interpretation to use another phrase, of a conflict that took place or a network of conflicts. I mean, it's very difficult to believe that over a thousand ships would have gathered from all over Greece and descended on this fairly small place of Troy and have sort of fought there for 10 years, as is the case in the Iliad. There's no way. I mean, that just seems slightly unreasonable. I think we're sort of in for kind of elevating what might have been a smaller conflict or a network of different conflicts. And he's almost using it as a last hurrah, I think, for the Mycenaean age. Because so what we know is that soon after the period of the Trojan War, these great My- Mycenaean civilization actually suffers a dramatic decline, which has never really properly been explained. So, in some sense, the Trojan War looks like an allegory for this period of change, really, really drastic change that happened.
3: And do you think that's why it had such a hold over the ancient Greek imagination, even until today?
2: I think, I think so, because I think that, I mean, something we often attribute to home when we talk about golden age thinking, we talk about golden age thinking. And the people in the epics, they all seem to be convinced that their own ancestors were bigger than them, they were stronger than them, they were mightier, they were braver, they were greater in all these different respects. And I think that's because they're looking at these cities that were built. They're looking at these fantastic limestone walls. They're looking at these amazing graves built into hillsides. They're looking at these sort of tombs full of gold. And they're thinking, God, we don't measure up to this at all. We've really declined with the times. And I think we almost suffer that same feeling sometimes. So I think we can look at some of the buildings. You know, we look at, I don't know, Hampton Court Palace, and we think, God, we're not doing anything on that scale today. They must have had really some strength that we we sort of, some skills that we've, we've lost or the kind of a determination. Something's gone. and we, we kind of see our own times as being inferior to the ones that came before. And I think with Homer, you can understand why, The Greeks probably felt the same way when they're looking at the remains, even though a lot of these palaces were destroyed. They're actually destroyed at the same kind of time as Troy, again, hinting at this widespread event of disaster that's happening at this time. There were still remains that people would have seen in Homer's time. They'd have seen as we still do see today, this great gate with the um lions at Mycenae. You might have seen it sort of photographed quite widely. It's actually lionesses, I think, at the top. We know it is the lion gate, which, you know, there's this massive lintel. And you're thinking these would have taken giants, surely, to build something like that. And they're seeing aspects of this which really reinforce their belief that there were sort of a greater um age of warriors that came before them.
3: And are there any historians or archaeologists these days who Actively discount the possibility of there being a Trojan War.
2: I think a lot of them do. I think um, I don't want to misquote him, but I'd say, um, so Paul Cartledge, for example, fantastic Greek historian. I think he denies the existence of a Trojan War. Quite a lot of people. That's a very common position. I'd say. I mean, classes are divided. You'd find very few who will stick their neck out and say, yes, absolutely, there was a Trojan War, exactly as Homer described. Um, It happened, and this is the proof for it. Because you can't really do that. But you will find a lot who will say, absolutely, categorically not. a story albeit drawn from certain aspects of the world that we can still see today and I'm I'm, you know I'm probably it's probably obvious by now I'm I'm in that group that says that I I think there there is enough to say that there was a Trojan war if not on the scale that Homer described.
3: Is there any evidence that could possibly be uncovered that might settle this question either way?
2: I think we're looking potentially at finding more at Troy in the layers that interest us so Troy 6 and Troy 7 it'd be interesting for example to know we know that there was sort of widespread fire in both these levels was it definitely is there anything we could find that we could say oh yeah that was a a man-made fire rather than this is just a sort of a natural house fire that got out of hand or this was an earthquake and then fire spread it would be nice to find, we well, I was like, you're going to find Toe or anything like that. But there's something that would explain why this happened. Is there evidence that man was involved in some respect and it wasn't just a natural disaster? Because we know that Troy does sit in an area which is very prone to earthquakes. I don't think we can explain the whole destruction of Troy 6, this glorious city purely through um, an earthquake. I think there's just too much other um, evidence to, to consider.
3: And why do you think people care so much about whether the Trojan War was real? Why is this one of the great mysteries that people still debate today?
2: I think it's partly it's, it's the most famous story that's come out of Greece and Rome, and it's the one that obsessed the Greeks and the Romans most. So if you're looking at any evidence from Greece and Rome, if you're looking at any work of literature, any work of history, there will always be some mention of Homer, some mention of Paris or Hector or Troy. It just infiltrates so much of classical culture. It's their foundation myth in so many ways. It's almost like the Homeric epics, almost like their Bible. It's it's part of their culture. And you can't really understand Greece and Rome without it. So I think in the same way, we look back on the Trojan War as being the conflict that most defines the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world in particular, But as I've said, it it isn't just limited to Greece and Rome. We've potentially got a huge number of other people involved. You've got the Hittites, you know, for one. Really, they sort of suffer this great decline as well. And I think the mystery is part of the appeal. In a sense, it would be disappointing if we discovered there's absolutely no chance that there was a war. Or yes, there absolutely was a war. I think we like to interpolate the evidence and look at Um, all these different people and think, could there have been a Helen? I mean, I personally think that the Helen aspect of the story is more a a symbolic presence rather than, you know, I don't think that the war was actually fought over a woman.
3: Okay, Daisy, I think I've kind of been through everything I was planning to ask you. Is there anything really important you think we should have talked about that I didn't ask you about?
2: I think I was going to say something a little bit about, um, so the decline, just because that helps to sort of feed into what was going on. In terms of after the Trojan War, I've sort of mentioned a few times that we've had sort of this great decline of the Mycenaean age with all the palaces being burned down. I think what's really sort of interesting historians is why this happened, why you get the fall of the Mycenaeans, which in some ways Homer seems to sort of symbolize in, in his poems. And so sort of the traditional explanation before, um, sort of, you know, years and years ago, was that there was a Dorian invasion. And it was said to a group of of Dorians who maybe came from the Balkans, maybe they came from Epirus in the north, no one quite knew who they were, came and invaded and the, the Mycenaeans fell as a consequence and that's not really accepted particularly anymore and kind of alongside that you get this evidence of the sea peoples again another great mystery of, of the sea peoples is sort of mysterious piratical fighters who seem to have attacked Egypt in particular is to find inscriptions describing the sea peoples uh, helping uh, a king of Libya to attack Egypt and there being an Egyptian victory and I'd say I mean what these two stories have in common is migration and we have sort of quite strong evidence of migration among the Mycenaean people. They seem to be migrating east at quite a rate, just after the period of the Trojan War. And it's difficult to say exactly what's happening, and there's a lot of evidence now emerging. People are very keen to say that there was a dramatic period of climate change, which caused a lot of people to flee, particularly from mainland Greece and from Egypt. We find a lot of Mycenaeans going to Crete. For example, and um, we think that maybe there was you know, some really dramatic drought and famine which caused a lot of people to change. So There's a huge period of flux. but then at the same time it's really really tempting to connect all of this to the period that's come before with the Trojan War supposedly or you know any of these other wars that were happening in the same period. And certainly, if you look at Thucydides, another of the great historians of the ancient world, he actually said he said the late return of the Greeks from Troy gave rise to to many changes and strife was quite general, he says, in the cities. So I think in antiquity, there was a real link between what's happening in the period of the Trojan War and then what happens straight afterwards where you get this dramatic shriveling of populations, this kind of mass migrations. It really gives rise to a period of flux. And I think that's, again, part of what makes me so tempted to believe in the existence of a Trojan War, it seems that it'd be nice to think something triggered all of this. I don't think all of this happens out of nowhere. Almost the Trojan War seems to be the trigger to a lot of change that happens in this period. And then you get what used to be called the, the Dark Ages. I think as historians, we know that Dark Ages isn't very popular as a term anymore. But certainly you get a period where you don't have writing in the same way that you had among the Mycenaeans and the Hittites. You have this illiterate society before then, the establishment of a new alphabet in Greece, which is when the Homeric epics are written down. Thanks for listening. This podcast was
0: produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.